If you would take your Bibles and turn to two different passages of Scripture, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, because we are continuing our series in Ephesians, but I also want you to see Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 5, and Colossians chapter 3. We've talked about Ephesians and Colossians. It seems Paul wrote them at the same time. They are, in very many ways, mirror images of each other. And so I want to see this, this passage as Paul unfolds it in two different passages of Scripture. So we will read Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, and then Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Keep both of them handy during the message if you can and after reading I'm going to ask um, Brother Gary if he would ask the blessing on the reading. Ephesians 5 starting at verse 18 be not drunk with wine wherein is excess but be filled with the spirit speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. In Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Brother Gary, would you? Amen. All right. <clears throat> Funny story before we begin and get serious. The, the author of this is unknown, but it's about the difference between old-fashioned hymns and modern praise choruses. The story goes, an old farmer went to the city one weekend and attended a big city church, and he came home and told his wife how it was, and it was pretty good, but the singing was odd, They sang praise choruses instead of regular hymns. And when he was asked to describe the difference, he said this. He said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, that would be a straightforward regular hymn. If on the other hand, I were to say to you, Martha, 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 oh, Martha, Martha, the cows, the big cows, The brown cows, the black cows, the white cows, the black and white cows, the cows, cows, cows are in the corn, in the corn, in the corn. And then we'll repeat the whole thing two or three times with a key change at the end. That would be like a modern praise chorus. Well, as Providence would have it, the exact same Sunday, a Christian from the city attended that man's small 
church. And he came home and explained to his wife that it was a great service, but the singing was strange because they sang old-fashioned hymns instead of regular songs. And when asked to explain the difference, he said this. Well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, that would be like a regular song. But on the other hand, if I were to say to you, O Martha, dear Martha, hear thou my cry. Inclinest thy ear to the words of my mouth. Turn thou thy whole wondrous ear by and by to the righteous and glorious truth. For the way of the animals, who can explain? For in their heads is no shadow of sense. They hearken not in God's son or his reign, lest they from my tempting sweet corn are fenced. Yea, those cows in glad bovine rebellious delight broke free from their shackles, their warm pens issued. Then goaded by minions of darkness and night, they all my glorious sweet corn have chewed. Let us look to that bright shining day by and by where all foul corruptions of earth are reborn and no vicious animal makes my soul cry and I no longer see those foul cows in my corn. That would be like an old-fashioned hymn. I think the author's point to the story is to say that opinions and personal preferences in regard to music are widely varied and what qualifies as different or unusual depends on your perspective. It's important that we separate what is opinion from what is actually documented in Scripture as guidelines for music to use to worship God. It's not an issue of personal preference. It's an issue of biblical truth. In our text, the Apostle Paul is describing a phenomenon which proves that if you are filled with the Spirit you will display the Spirit's influence through worship in song. And this text, as well as the parallel text in Colossians 3, he shows that the source of your song is not found in the the size of your lungs or the quality of your singing voice or the age of the lyrics or the color of the hymn book you use, but it's the contents of your heart. Remember what Paul has been writing to the Ephesians. He's, he's writing to the church as a whole and to each member in particular. It's evidence that he's doing that by the frequent use of the phrase one another. He says in Ephesians 4.2 to forbear one another in love. He writes in chapter 4 verse 25, we are members one of another. In chapter 4 verse 32, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted and forgiving one another. And he's about to write in verse 21 to where we are to submit to one another in the fear of God. There is a one anotherness that is mandated in Scripture as a demonstration of genuine worship of God. For those who would say, well, no, I can, I can worship out in the boat on the lake Sunday morning because God's there, or I can worship at home on my couch. After all, we have live stream now. They are missing the one anotherness that the word commands. Unless we come together with one another, we cannot do what Paul says here to speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Music, that is worship in song was part of Old Testament praise to God and throughout the New Testament, it is the means by which the church expresses praise of God. 
the Lord Jesus himself sang psalms with his church on the, the, the night of his arrest. As they were imprisoned, Paul and Silas sang songs of praise from their jail cell. The church at Ephesus and the church at Colossae are, are, are to utilize music as a, a means of praise. James even says in James 5.13 that suffering should point us to prayer and that joy should move us to sing praises. Yet within that encouragement and endorsement to sing praises, there is also an understanding that some God-honoring structure must be in place in order that we, to ensure that we are expressing spirit-filled praise. That's the context of Paul here in Ephesians 5, isn't it? Enthusiastic worship will be an expression of a spirit-filled life. In verse 18, do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, and as you are filled with the Spirit, you will speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Enthusiastic worship is an expression of a Spirit-filled Christian. I mean, the whole world has a song to sing, right? There's no shortage of them. Will just any song do? Clearly not. Paul says to utilize psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we need to dive into that phrase and determine what it is that he meant. What is it that that promotes and what is it that that prohibits? You can easily find folks who will tell you, well, anything new is wrong. Anything with instruments is evil. Anything that was written by a non-Baptist has to be rejected. And anything with repetition is vain repetition. In fact, some of you have seen men sit here at a Bible conference in years past with arms folded, a look of absolute disdain on their face if we sang anything from the blue hymnal. Gotta imagine they would be appalled to find out we have a blue folder now. (laughs) While we must respect those with different views on the issues, our own practice needs to be based on a proper understanding of Scripture, not tradition, not personal preferences. And we'll find that Scripture does not advocate like an anything-goes approach to worship music. What we've done is we've read the two passages in the New Testament that have the most clear application to singing in public worship. And want to just examine the wording and then place the common phrases into the context of each passage. This morning, the the goal is to examine the context and the content of New Testament praise. While the context of Colossians and Ephesians is just slightly different, they are very similar, we can see in each passage, Paul is advocating the use of singing publicly in order to praise the Lord in worship. Colossians, he says, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In Ephesians, he says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This, again, it is to be done together. To the Colossians, he says, it's teaching and admonishing one another. To the Ephesians, he says, speaking to yourselves. And he's not saying, everybody talk to yourself. He's saying, we talk to those around us. 
It's communicating with each other. The singing of praises to God, the use of music in worship, it is not a private thing. And in fact, that has always been the case within Christianity. I love some of the things that we can find in history outside of Scripture. And in the year 112 A.D., so we're talking a long time ago, in 112 A.D., there was a a, a fellow named uh, Pliny the Younger in Turkey, the very place where Ephesians and Colossians was written to. And he was a Roman legate, and he was, trying, he was writing a letter to Roman Emperor Trajan as they were, you know, at this point in time, trying to get their minds around what is this Christianity thing that is growing within the Roman Empire. And here's how Pliny described Christians to the Roman Emperor Trajan. Just a little snippet. He says, They are wont on a fixed day to meet before daylight and to recite a hymn among themselves by turns to Christ as if he were God. Except for the meeting before sunrise. That's a pretty good description of Christianity, right? We get together and we sing and we do this singing to Christ as he is God. Pliny's understanding of Christian worship described the singing that happened in Christian worship. They, they assembled together. They sang together. But Paul adds more than just saying they sang together. In both passages, he refers to three specific things, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Psalms, it is the tradition of using the Old Testament canon of psalms for musical purposes. Psalms is this collection of 150 Hebrew songs that were to be used in worship. And so the Psalms, by their very definition, would have required musical instruments as accompaniment. The very word psalm in Hebrew is describing the strumming or striking of a stringed instrument. Right, We use the word strum, but they would have used the word psalming. Okay, So it, it would have included instruments. These are the psalms that Paul is talking about, that collection of psalms in the Old Testament. Hymns is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to denote any song of praise. It seems to indicate a, a song of worship or a song of praise that is not located in the psalms themselves, but are still, is still located inside of Scripture somewhere. A form of the same word is used to describe Jesus singing in the church in Hebrews 2.12. There are portions of the New Testament which in the original language were clearly lyrical and meant to be sung. It doesn't always show up for us that way in English, but when you can read it in Greek, you go, oh, these are song lyrics. So, a couple of examples. 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Or Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things and for your pleasure they are and were created. 
These are the hymns that Paul's talking about. Incidentally, both of those are songs that can be sung today. Come find me afterward if you want to hear them. Spiritual songs, the word song that Paul uses here, ode in Greek, or if you've heard of an ode in English, is more generic than the other two. It, it describes any song or lyrical poetry, but Paul does not intend to be generic here. Even though he uses this sort of generic word, he also adds this descriptive adjective of spiritual songs. The use of spiritual indicates the Holy Spirit and its influence in maintaining the purity of worship. Clearly, some songs are not spiritual songs, and Paul is not endorsing the use of them. Well, some debate the actual defining of those three terms, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It seems evident to anyone who reads the New Testament that Paul is not given to needless repetition. He uses three terms because they are describing three different things. Psalms from that collection of 150 songs in the Old Testament. Hymns, lyrical portions found throughout Scripture. And beyond that, spiritual songs, biblically accurate songs that are written and sung by spirit-filled people. Any fair reading of these texts has to conclude Paul's concept of biblical worship includes a variety of musical sources and expressions. Yet, Paul also goes on to describe that the real source of musical worship Listen to me carefully here. When Paul commands singing within the congregation, there is a a horizontal aspect to praise and worship and there is a vertical aspect to praise and worship. By horizontal, I mean there is a sense in which the purpose of singing is both to and for those people who are around you. In Ephesians, he says singing is a way of speaking to yourselves, right? This is a way that we communicate with one another. In Colossians, he says that singing is a means of teaching and admonishing one another. So that's the horizontal element. There is a sense in which singing is both to and for others. That's why we're called to do it together. But then Paul goes on to describe the vertical elements or the vertical aspect of saints singing. In Colossians, he writes, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In Ephesians, he says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. The word he uses there is sort of fascinating to me. This this word for making melody is the same word for psalming. The process of strumming strings on a musical instrument. And so let me ask you, what, in Paul's view, is the most important instrument in the musical praise of God? It's your heart. You must sing in your heart. You must strum the chords of your heartstrings in order to praise God effectively. Our hearts 
Not our mouths, but our heart is the source. And the Lord himself is the destination of our praise. In Colossians, he's saying, if the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, it's going to overflow in this vocal praise to God. I know some people will defend their lack of singing by sort of ironically coming to these very passages and say, look, as I'm sitting there silent like a lump on the pew, I am singing and making melody in my heart to the Lord. Y'all, that is not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying it's okay to keep the praise of God in your heart. He's simply saying to make sure that what's in your heart and what's on your lips agree with what's on the page of Scripture. Don't be like the Old Testament Jewish people whose hearts were far from God, and though their hearts were far from God, it did not stop them at all from singing and playing anyway. God told them in Amos chapter 5, verse 23, stop it. Okay, what he, what he actually said is, take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But essentially, stop it. If your heart isn't right, you cannot sing in a way that's right. So sing, that is a command, but sing from the heart. I wonder if those people who refuse to sing in church worship expect to spend eternity refusing to sing in God's heavenly assembly. Right? Surrounded by people in Revelation 19.1 who are singing hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Do you think that you'll spend eternity with your arms crossed making excuses saying, well, I'm singing in my heart. I don't think so. Of course, your heart should always have a song. I do not deny that even when we are not singing out loud in corporate worship, believers should have a sincere and silent symphony within them. But silence cannot accomplish what Paul commands here for us to do. He says this music teaches and admonishes one another. He says it speaks to one another. Teaching is to instruct. Admonishing is to correct. Speaking is it's out loud. No song locked away in the recesses of your heart can teach or admonish or speak anything until it finds voice and expression. This also means, of course, that our singing has to be theologically accurate. In Colossians, he leads into this command by saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Right? Since the word is in your heart, the music we play and sing is a display of our hearts toward God. The songs that we sing are going to be a reflection of the word of Christ dwelling within us richly. If we're evaluating some song to determine if it's appropriate for worship the rhythm and the rhyme of the song are vastly less important than the lyrics. The style is a matter of personal preference. The content is required to express God's word richly. More on that in a moment. But allow me to say it like this. 
you have no more authority to sing a lie from the pew than I have authority to preach a lie from the pulpit. We have to be accurate in our singing. One more thing before we move on. You're singing to the Lord, right? You see that, right? The end of verse 16, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. It doesn't matter if your neighbor in the pew doesn't find it pleasing. I've heard some of y'all. I know. I understand. It matters whether or not the Lord finds it pleasing. So sing. Sing together, right? That's the horizontal aspect of worship. But ultimately, your praise and worship is performed for an audience of one that is God himself. It is that way now, and it will be that way for eternity in heaven as a child of God saved by faith in Jesus. You have been called to this starring role in the dramatic musical of eternity, and it requires you to sing. My children are going to be amused because I say that not even liking musicals myself. Now, there are objections that you will hear to this, and you've encountered them before. There are regulations for corporate worship. Some, some would impose some regulations beyond that, and I fear in the process they go beyond what Scripture commands. In fact, many times they oppose what Scripture commands, so let's just address a few of them. Is any new music bad? Well, of course, we don't call it new nowadays. We call it contemporary. Contemporary Christian music is bad. Well, Isaac Watts, who lived from 1674 to 1748, he has been called the father of modern hymnody because he wrote over 500 hymns. You know some of them. You know, Joy to the World, When I Survey the Wonders Cross. In his lifetime, he suffered through many arguments of people saying that his songs were not valid for worship because they were contemporary. And of course, that's the nature of all music. Is it, it is contemporary at some point, right? Isaac Watts was contemporary when he lived 300 years ago. In frustration to that argument, Watts included a verse in his song, We're Marching to Zion. It's on page 29 in your red hymnals if you want to look at it. But verse 2 starts, Let all those refuse to sing who never knew our God, but children of the heavenly king can speak their joys abroad. Watts' idea was that rejection of new songs that praise God was not a, an issue of just personal preference, but it was also a lack of joy in the hearts of those who refused to sing. New songs are not to be rejected just because they're new songs. There will be a new song sung in heaven, according to Revelation 5.9 and 14.3, Isaiah 42, verse 10, commands sing a new song unto the Lord. The Psalms are filled with multiple admonitions to sing a new song. You can look, find them in Psalm 96, 98, 144, 149, or my favorite, Psalm 40, verse 3. He has put a new song in my mouth. Even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and trust in the Lord. 
The reason I like that one so much is it is the psalm of David who says that his new song will praise the Lord and he hopes that it causes people to trust in the Lord. I particularly love it because in the superscription of Psalm 40, it says that David wrote this psalm and had it delivered to the chief musician, probably a man named Asaph. Can you imagine David sending a messenger with this newly written song to the chief musician Asaph and getting a message back shortly later saying, I'm sorry, King David, we can't use this to worship God. You just wrote it yesterday. If you wanted us to use this to worship God, you needed to write it 300 years ago. Of course, the question of music is not if it is contemporary, but only if the lyrics are consistent with the word of God, which dwells in us richly. You've heard the argument that some have made that, well, instrumentality is an issue. Can you praise God with contemporary musical instruments? Well, I would question what that has to do with it. Like, we don't have an electric guitar up here and drums this morning, but would it be somehow sinful if we did? Do we have contemporary instruments? Well, again, it depends on who you ask. If you could go back to, say, the 1920s, you would have found that there is a controversy in churches as to whether or not a piano could be used in worship service. Because about 100 years ago, the piano was associated with music of dance halls, and you, know, you see an old western, and every tavern has a player piano in it. That has to be the devil's instrument. Well, no, they can be used that way, but they can also be redeemable in the sense that they can be used to praise God. One, one fellow I, I knew actually preached from here, from Psalm 150. You want to turn to Psalm 150 for just a minute. He preached from Psalm 150 from this pulpit at a Bible conference made the argument from the first three verses that the praise of God was to be based on his mighty acts. And that is undeniably true. However, in the course of the sermon, he also argued that he didn't want contemporary music in his assembly because it's all self-focused and it's not biblical music with all those crazy instruments and stuff. I would question how he interpreted the rest of the psalm after he got done with verse 3. If biblical music is what we seek, would we be ready for the music that's described in the rest of Psalm 150? What would we do if somebody showed up this morning and wanted to do a special that included a trumpet, a psaltery, a harp, timbrel, dancing, stringed instruments, organs, two different kinds of cymbals? The very point of Psalm 150 is verse 1, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in the firmament of his power. That's a phrase from creation. Praise him in verse 2 for his mighty acts and his excellent greatness. Praise him verses 3 through 6 with all kinds of instruments. And in verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Can I just summarize that for a second? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in worship services. Praise the Lord in all of his creation. Praise the Lord for what he has done. Praise the Lord for who he is. Praise the Lord with every instrument you can get your hands on and make sure that if you breathe, you're praising the Lord. Some would argue that the style 
of the music, right? The, the beat of the music is very important. I'm not going to deal with this real long just because I don't have anything from Scripture to, to say about it. I've heard it explained. There's certain rhythms and timing signatures and music that's, that's evil because, uh, you know, even the instrumental part of music has a sense of morality, I always wanted to ask, well, if everything in music has a sense of morality, like is a B flat or a C sharp more righteous? I don't know. How can I find out? You know, they make arguments and generalities like straight rhythm is natural, but backbeat rhythm is unnatural and appeals to our flesh. Well, that's just not something that we find in Scripture, right? It may or may not be true, but it's not something we find in Scripture. The only argument to be found in regard to the beat of music in Scripture is the use of those timbrels that Psalm 150 describes, which is essentially like our modern-day tambourine, but I don't see anything that says how fast or slow or what kind of beat to play it at. Others argue we have to know the hearts of the writers and the original performers of a song if we're going to use it. They would say that we wouldn't want to use a song from a heretic. Listen, I agree there's a concern there. Listen, there are sources of music today that are somewhat suspect and I would hesitate to endorse. But generally speaking, the weakness of those sources is also reflected in the weakness of the songs they produce. So, for example, there is a modern culture in contemporary Christian music of what has been labeled by others as singing about boyfriend Jesus. The lyrics where essentially everything sounds theologically correct, but it's just so shallow that you could substitute any guy's name in there and it could be a teenage girl singing about her boyfriend. Songs that say things and only things like, I'm lost without you, I'm desperate for you, your love is extravagant, your love fills my heart. Well, it's not necessarily wrong, it's just not deep enough to mean anything. If I were to sing, I love him and where he goes I'll follow, he'll always be my true love for now until forever. Some of y'all would think that was a praise hymn and others would recognize it was an early 60s pop song by Peggy March. The difference is the depths of the lyrics. It's not, it's not so much that the things they're saying are specifically wrong. It's, well, is it a reflection of, as Paul says in Colossians, the word of Christ dwelling in you richly and it produces this rich singing of songs and hymns and spiritual songs? Deep understanding of the word of God is going to exhibit itself in deep hymns of praise to God. I, Appreciate there was a man named Tim Challies who I heard preach once, and this, this is what he said. He was picking on the prosperity gospel, which is always one of my favorite targets. He says, name me one great hymn that has arisen from the prosperity gospel movement. There just isn't one. The theology is not rich enough to generate a rich hymn. It is a shallow, trite, silly gospel that can only ever generate shallow, trite, silly songs. If you want to know if a church or a movement is rich and full and satisfying, look at the songs they sing. Now, Paul doesn't give us a flow chart or anything for, for analyzing potential songs other than to say they have to be spiritual, they have to be a reflection of the richness of the Word of God, they have to be an example of spirit filled praise. 
ultimately that has to be judged based on the song itself, not on our own hearts or the theological view of the person who wrote or first sang it. Frankly, we have some songs that we sing that I'm, I'm glad we have, but I wouldn't want you to go to church with the people who wrote the songs. Um, maybe the best example we sang this morning, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. It's written by a group called City Alight. They do some fantastic music, but they are Australian Anglicans. And I don't have anything against Australians, but Anglicans like drinking a can full of Diet Catholic. I mean, there's just not anything you need. But City of Light wrote a song that praises God for creation and his sovereignty and his son who is a servant, a shepherd king. It praises the Father, Son, and the Spirit. It is about as far from boyfriend Jesus as you can get. And so despite the source, we consider it to be a worthwhile spiritual song. That's been the practice of Baptists throughout history. Consider what Charles Spurgeon if you're a Baptist, you always got to have the authority, right? Charles Spurgeon. There's almost a book in here somewhere from him. His church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, decided to print and publish their own hymn book back in the late 1800s. And this is what he wrote, part of what he wrote on the introduction to his church's hymn book. Quote, the area of our researches has been as wide as the bounds of existing religious literature, American and British, Protestant and Romish, ancient and modern. Whatever might be thought of our taste, we have exercised it without prejudice. A good hymn has not been rejected because of the character of its author or the heresies of the church in whose hymnal it first appeared. In other words, that's simply to say, if the song has God-honoring theological depth, it can be used in praise of him, no matter the original source of music, the spiritual condition that we think about the author, the denomination which first played it. And you've seen how this gets, has gotten applied sometimes, or maybe you haven't seen it, but like, you know, there's been controversy in churches about, well, someone brought a, a recording that they wanted played the music so they could sing with it, and they were told, no, you can't do that, because we don't know who's on that recording. Somebody, you know, playing the harp might not be saved. You know, some strange arguments take place. There's also a criticism of modern praise music, much like the introductory story we use, that repetition is vain always. You know, I I would remind you the, the meaning of the word vain is empty or meaningless. Jesus warns us of vain repetition in our prayers, but what makes repetition vain, meaningless, empty, you know, is not the repetition itself. It's the content of what's being repeated. And so we have traditional hymns that have choruses that repeat. How long does a verse in between have to be before the chorus becomes vain repetition? All that suggestion that it's going to displease God ignores the word of God, Isaiah 6, 3, describes angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's an additional description in Revelation 4, 8. They did not rest day and night singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Just repeating it. Music doesn't need to be based on, judged based on its age, instrumentality, particular style or beats, repetitious nature, 
but that doesn't mean there are no standards by which music should be judged. So, as Paul describes, we should sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to God. He does so in the context of a larger message in both of these letters. The context of the passage in Colossians is to is the, the peace of God that comes through the word of God, right? In Colossians 3.15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. That's where the heartstrings are that you should be strumming. To which you are called in one body and be thankful, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing another, one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The word of Christ, this word, the scripture, Dwelling in our hearts is the source of true biblical worship music. And so this is what should come out when we sing. Since the word is in our hearts, the music we play and sing is a display of our hearts toward God, then what we sing must reflect the truth of God's word dwelling in us richly. The word, the scripture, this is what the church is all about. Right? We're to teach one another with song, but we have nothing to teach except the word of Christ. We're to admonish one another, but you have no basis for correcting error except through the word of Christ. You're not able to sing acceptable praise to God if your song doesn't come from and conform to the word of God. The source of your authority is man-made traditions or religious, religious rituals or Human philosophy you cannot teach or admonish or, or sing successfully. Our authority is the word. You not only need it in you, Paul says, you need it in you richly. So while I will continue to argue that the proclamation of the word is vital in worship, let's also admit what you get in the proclamation of the word in worship is not enough. You cannot come to church and hope for some 30 or 45 minute gospel booster shot that is going to inoculate you and keep you healthy for the next seven days. A once or twice weekly dose of scripture is not enough. You need to be reading it and studying it and memorizing it. You need to have it dwelling in you richly. It needs to be in your home and it needs to be at home in your heart. It needs to be comfortable there. Right? Is, is the word of Christ at home in your heart or is it like one of those infrequent visitors that when it comes to your home, you kind of want it to get out because you're uncomfortable with it? Because you'll find it is impossible to live for God if you're not living with the word of God because you're not being spirit-filled through the spirit-inspired word. You're not having the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So we're evaluating a song to determine if it's appropriate for worship. The content is required to express God's word as it is hidden in our hearts. And let me just say, some modern music fails to meet that standard. Some of our traditional music fails to meet that standard. I mean, if we truly understand that there is no universal, invisible church, how can we lightly sing, till all the ransom church of God be saved to sin no more? 
Or can folks who understand the true sovereign nature of God's grace sing a song that describes the Lord Jesus as desperately waiting, having done all he can do. He wants to be your savior. Now it's up to you. So he's, he's calling and he's waiting and he's watching and he's pleading in some powerless manner. It's, it's nonsense. And yet we have those songs and we happily sing them because they're traditional to us. The context of the passage in Colossians shows the word has to be accurately reflected in our music. The context of the passage in Ephesians says that music is an expression of a spirit-filled life, right? Be filled with the spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The context of both passages include thankful praise to God. What we sing needs to be an expression of thankful praise because everything we do and say is to be an expression of thankful praise. Listen to this again in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the na- in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Or here in Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. Expressing that thankfulness is the purpose of singing in the assembly. And so are you thankful this morning? A thankful heart is a heart that is made to worship. So are you thankful that the Lord has made you a part of his family? Are you thankful because you have the peace of God in your heart? Are you thankful because the word dwells in you richly and it teaches you just how blessed you have been to be part of the Father's family. Thankful because you know in everything you say or do, it's the reputation of Jesus' name himself that's on the line. Thankful for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to be spirit-filled in everything that we do to worship and honor God. God God-honoring worship is expressed through praying to the Lord, preaching the word, praising God in song. And the value of those songs is not found in the size of your lungs or the quality of your vocal cords or the age of the lyrics or the color of your hymn book. It's in the biblical expression of a congregation's heart together to express thankfulness to the Lord. Lord, help us that it will always be so here.